It's Monday, February 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. And so it happened, while we did avert another government shutdown, President Trump declared a national emergency at the border to get funds for his border wall. Now all the questions surrounding this are, how long will it take to process this after legal challenges, and what projects will have to be halted so the money can be reallocated? Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for more on this never-ending fight over border security. Next, you wouldn't think this would be such a divisive topic, but the LA Times ruffled some feathers with its official fast food French fry power rankings. We spoke to Lucas Quan Peterson, the LA Times food columnist, about his methodology, the intense backlash he received for his rankings, and why he positions burger favorite In-N-Out dead last when it comes to French fries. Finally, Americans are abandoning public transit, but don't necessarily blame ride-sharing companies. But cars are still the problem. Over 50% of former transit riders have full-time access to a car, which means they don't need that bus or train anymore. Arianne Marshall, writer at Wired, joins us for the increased shift away from public transportation. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It's going to go to court. There's going to be resolutions in both the House and Senate to disapprove of what the president's doing. I think they'll pass. But when the president will veto them, I don't think there's any chance that the veto will be overridden. I think there are plenty of votes in the House to make sure that there's no override of the president's veto. So it's going to be settled in court. We'll have to wait and see. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. So the president did declare the national emergency at the border on Friday. It was met with a lot of criticism, uh, both from, I mean, obviously from Democrats and uh, some Republicans. I mean, the president had this uh, long press conference. He was taking a lot of questions. It got pretty combative with reporters at one point. What are we expecting with this? I know it's going to be a long legal fight. Long press conference on Friday from the president. At moments, rambling and a bit surreal. He went on several tangents. He had a little sing-songy section about getting (laughs) sued. But it was, in short, him declaring a national emergency. And this is him saying, Congress isn't giving me what I want. I'm tired of waiting for Congress to give me what I want. So I'm just going to go do it myself. And doing it himself is taking money away from existing military construction projects and putting it into building a wall on the southern border, a move that is undoubtedly going to draw a lot of opposition. How much of all of this about the border wall is about politics and 2020 versus an actual emergency at the border, though? You know, it's interesting that the president himself said it was about politics, although he was arguing that this should have been something simple that Congress just passed and that their insistence on playing politics. They were trying to keep him from getting something that he knew was going to play well with his voters was the reason they were stopping him, that this was them just trying to hurt him. I guess there is some argument to be made on the flip side of his own argument that he's doing this without Congress because he knows it's something his voters want and he knows it's something he's told his voters that he will deliver and he's run out of any other way to deliver it. We'll speculate a lot about what voters punish politicians for, but there is always the risk that if you say you're going to do something, you don't do it, that voters punish you. But I think that in this case, especially with Trump, he feels that he had to, that this was something that he didn't really have a choice 
nervous about it. And that's why he's declared a national emergency. There's little precedent for a national emergency such as this. The question is, how are they going to use the president's own words? He even said during that press conference, oh, I could have done this a different way. I didn't have to do this. As you said, it's kind of about politics. I didn't get the funding from Congress, so I'm going to just go around and do it myself. Are they going to be able to use those words against the president to say, you know, when this runs its way through the courts, hey, this is not an actual emergency there? Absolutely. We know that the state of California is going to file suit imminently. They said over the weekend that they will be using the president's words. Many would argue that saying, as he did, that he didn't have to do this, sort of the opposite of an emergency, that if it was an emergency, he would have had to do it. But that because he is acting outside of what a traditional emergency is, you know, I talked to legal experts who told me that this is the most aggressive use of presidential power when it came to the national emergency, when it came to almost anything that uh, using a national emergency in this way was unprecedented and, and really an aggressive end run around Congress. We know where Democrats stand on this. It still seems that Republicans are in the stickiest situation with this. What are Republicans going to do when they're fighting for certain of these defense projects, things that might be going on in their states? And now they're going to get the money taken away. Are Republicans on board with the president? It seems from my reading that not all of them are. Not all of them are. In fact, I'm surprised that some of them are. We saw Mitch McConnell very aggressively discouraging the president from doing this, but then not putting up a fight once the president did do it on Friday. Republicans are going to have a problem on a couple of fronts. First off, you're right. There's the money. If you've got a project in your district and now or your state, and now that project is going to lose its money, everyone has active duty military, the family and friends of active duty military in their constituencies. They're losing things that were meant for them, projects that were meant for them. That's going to be hitting home for members of Congress. But second, there's the philosophical opposition here. Republicans are the party of small government. Republicans are the party of constrained power. And this is outside of what would be consistent with their ideology. And so I think we're going to see a lot of Republicans who are unhappy, who maybe vote against the president. We're going to see likely a vote on a resolution to oppose his declaration of an emergency because this does go against their philosophy, their way of thinking. What happens with that? Because I was curious. So they might have some resolution of disapproval of the declaration of national emergency. If that passes, they're saying that this could be the first veto from the president over that. But I'm confused as to what that does. He's already declared the national emergency. It's going to get sued. It's going to go through the courts. But if they pass this and the president can't veto it, then is the national emergency over? Yes. So there is a law that says that in the president has the ability to declare a national emergency, but Congress has the ability to override him. He might not be able to veto it. It's not like a regular bill that becomes a law. It's a resolution. And for that reason, that might not even be an option available to him vetoing him. They could just override it. And if he did, he would lose the national emergency. So he needs the national emergency to be able to take land and to use some of the law to let him move some of that money separate the resolution of disapproval, he's also going to face opposition for moving the money. There are lots of rules and laws about how one can move money. And even without the national emergency or even with the national emergency, he may be in violation of some of the rules that govern how a president can move funds around. Just one last note on, on the border. The New York Times had a report saying that Trump's tough deterrence there at the border between 
you know, migrants having to stay in Mexico while seeking asylum, all that stuff is kind of working. Asylum seekers on the border are giving up. A lot of them are either just staying in Mexico and taking jobs there or returning back to their home countries. So little wins underneath all of this for the president are still happening. That's right. And that may ultimately undermine his argument that there's a crisis if people are being deterred through other means. Right. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. A lot of anger. I started doing these rankings initially because I thought, oh, if we can sort of rank sports teams, why can't we do it with food? And the result is like equally the same. People, especially people who love In-N-Out in California, when I said that I didn't particularly care for In-N-Out fries, the reaction was not happy. Joining us now is Lucas Kwan Peterson, food columnist for the LA Times. I always love when lists like these come out. You wrote something for the LA Times, the official fast food French fry power rankings. These articles are always instantly polarizing. Everybody loves their favorites so much and hates everything else. And when you say something contrary, right away, people disagree with you. So let's start there. What kind of reaction have you gotten to this article so far? A lot of anger. A lot of anger. I started doing these rankings initially because I thought, oh, if we can sort of rank sports teams, why can't we do it with food? And the result is like equally the same. If you tell someone who's a diehard Patriots fan, like, I hate the Patriots, you know what kind of a reaction you're going to get. Oh, yeah. get. So likewise, people, especially people who love In-N-Out in California, when I said that I didn't particularly care for In-N-Out fries, the reaction was not happy, to say the least. Right. Tell us a little bit about how you went through this. You went around and ate all of these fries. Tell us the parameters that you used with it. Yeah, I went around. I got about 19 or 20 places. I split it over a few days because I think if I had to go to all of them at once, I would probably kill myself with fat and sodium. Um, (laughs) So I split it out. I tried to map places around Los Angeles. So it was sort of a reasonable driving schedule. But as it is, I had to do a ton of driving around because some of the locations of like the Steak and Shake or like a Sonic, they're not a ton of them in Los Angeles. So I had to to drive pretty far out. But basically, I just plotted it out. I went, I ate the fries, I took photos, I took notes, and then I uh, just decided how I like them. And you judged them on two metrics, which was taste and texture, uh, which includes fry shape and mouthfeel. Texture is important in a fry. You can have some people like a nice crunchy fry. Some people like a crunchy fry mixed with the occasional soft fry. Yeah. Some people like a waffle fry. You know, it's it's really all depends on the individual. Let's get to the rankings now. Number 19, bottom of the list, in and out. Tell us why people were not happy. And, and <laughs> But I, I stand by my decision that In-N-Out fries are some of the worst fries on the face of the planet. <laughs> they are just not cooked thoroughly. They're frequently not salted properly. They're just kind of mealy. You know, I like a nice, fluffy interior, crispy exterior that you get from a double fry, you know, a proper way to cook a fry. And they don't do that in and out. I respect the fact that they're fresh, but there is little more than that that I can respect. Yeah. And that's always been one of the biggest mysteries to me is that they are fresh. You see them in the back cutting the potatoes in that little machine that they have. And they do routinely come out subpar. Uh, they're not my favorite fries. I love the burgers. Uh, you know, it's uniquely California. And you want a good fry to be a companion to that great burger and it's just not always there. So I agree with you there. I don't know if it's at the bottom of the list for me, but I agree with you that the fries could be better. 
All right, let's jump ahead. We'll get into the top five right here. Arby's comes in at number five. And you say, blessed be the curly fries. I think that may be more nostalgia than anything else. And I think nostalgia actually plays a, a large part of why people like In-N-Out. But I have memories of eating uh, curly fries in my high school cafeteria and sitting alone and wishing I had more friends. But, but the curly <laughs> fries were great. Yeah. Yeah, I love a good curly fry. Steak and Shake comes in at number four. I think this is the only fry on this entire list that I have not had. They've got really skinny fries. And I like a skinny fry because you get more of that exterior. On a, on a skinny fry. So I really like the shape and the, and the texture and, and they were pretty good. Number three is Del Taco. I've always loved Del Taco fries and always fought for them to get more notoriety. They're also crinkle cut fries. Yeah, people were excited. I didn't even know Del Taco had fries and I was extremely happy that they were good and yeah. that they came with like good hot sauce and they were hot and they were fresh and they were crispy on the outside, nice and fluffy on the inside. They were, they were really good. Number two this is one of my all-time favorites, and I think uh, you nailed it perfectly. That nostalgia factor really hits it there is McDonald's fries. Yeah, I, and, and when McDonald's fries are on, you know, there's no better fry. But again, you just never know. Maybe the ones that you have, you know, the ones that you get are have been sitting out for a little while, and they're not just like hot and fresh out the fryer. So, But when they're good, they're the best, and they're just like salty, and you get a really nice mixture of texture, crispy and a little soggy ones yeah. and then it's just nice and beefy and you can sort of grab a bunch at once and it, it's it's really just a, a great fry. I've been known to go to McDonald's and just get an order of fries and that's my snack and that's all I need. Top one, number one is Five Guys Fries and they fry these in peanut oil. They give you a ton. Even the small little cup that you order is like a large size fries somewhere else and I do love these fries. They're very good. Five Guys I was surprised. Again, it's like these fries are twice as much, cost twice as much as like an order of McDonald's fries, but they were so head and shoulders above every other fry in my estimation. They were just well-cooked peanut oil, really clean flavor. It didn't mask the potato flavor, very potatoey, well-salted, great texture. I was just very impressed by the fries and they were just not even approached by any other one. Thank you for doing all the legwork. Uh, I'm sure you'll still get a bunch of feedback and a lot of hate mail uh, to, in regards to this, but you know, keep doing yeah, them. The, and, ma the mayor is not very happy with me. Oh, I'm telling you, everybody loves that in and out. So you can't get away from it. Lucas Kwan Peterson, food columnist at the LA Times with the French Fry Power Rankings. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The Transit Center, which is a research and advocacy group, just put out a report that showed that in seven big cities across the U.S., about 25% of the people they polled said they're taking transit less than they did. Um, so that doesn't mean they've abandoned it altogether. They're just maybe not depending on it for every trip. Joining us now is Arianne Marshall, writer covering transportation for Wired. We're going to be talking about public transportation and how Americans are largely starting to abandon it. 
I mean, it's not going away completely. And then a lot of cities are set up for it where people do enjoy the public transportation, but ridership has been dropping. And a lot of people, obviously, first thing they want to point out is Uber and Lyft and the ride sharing economy is killing public transportations. That's not necessarily the case. What do we know about why people are abandoning public transportation? It's not like public transportation is totally going away. Right. There are still a ton of people who use it. Um, the Transit Center, which is a research and advocacy group based in New York City, just put out a report that showed that in seven big cities across the U.S., about 25% of the people they polled said they're taking transit less than they did. Um, so that doesn't mean they've abandoned it altogether. They're just maybe not depending on it for every trip, every commute. I rode the bus for about a year to go to school at some point, and I had a car, it broke down, then I had to take the bus. And just honestly, I hated it. I could never leave when I wanted to. It was always at the mercy of the bus. So I imagine that is one of the big problems that a lot of people have. You're definitely not alone. I'm a big bus fan myself, but um, some people are really frustrated by the bus. The truth is that it's not necessarily that the bus itself is a really bad transportation option. It's just kind of the way cities have been using buses in the U.S. Often the systems are underfunded. They don't come as frequently. So if you miss your bus, you're going to have to wait for 20 minutes out in the cold for the next one. Cities that have seen success with buses and with public transit overall have been investing in more frequent service, service that feels a little bit safer. Maybe they're putting up lights in their bus stations instead of having it be really dark at night. So there are ways to make people more comfortable with public transit. It's just a question of transit agencies actually doing those things. The way we get around is changing. We have the Ubers and the Lyfts. We have the bike and scooter share things now. I know those are big in a lot of cities over here in California where we're at. But what is the main thing? Riders are really having more access to cars is what it is. Yeah, exactly. There's this has been this big narrative that the ride hail companies like Uber and Lyft are taking away a ton of riders from public transit. And in a few select big cities, that's true to a degree. But there's been more and more research that's been coming out in the past year or so that's showing that these declines in transit ridership across the country are mostly due to the fact that people just would rather take cars. And, you know, the economy is doing pretty well. Car loans have actually been pretty easy to come by in the past few years, maybe too easy. Some people would argue some people are defaulting on their loans now. But that means that people are choosing the, the easier option, the more convenient option, albeit sometimes the more expensive option, which is owning your own car. Why would I take a terrible bus when I could take a car that would just go get <laughs> right. me exactly from my house to exactly to my office? So that's been the big reason why uh, transit ridership has been falling in, in some American cities. The effects of ride sharing. People say that maybe on an average, taking Uber and Lyft and these ride share cars really amounts to the price of maybe buying a car and maybe a little cheaper. So even that's still could drive people that way more than uh, other public transportation systems. Yeah, and, and that's a good point. I think one of the reasons that cities do have public transportation is that they have a responsibility to all their citizens to be able to get them from A to B every day. And there are so many people in this country who, who don't have enough money to have access to a vehicle or don't have a, enough money to take an Uber every day to work. And that's the reason why we have public transit. So equity advocates will tell you that that's the reason why we need to look very closely at why ridership is going down and make sure that our transportation system is something that can work for everyone, no matter how much money you make. What can cities do to make public transportation more accessible, more relaxing to people to want to increase their ridership there? I'd say the first 
thing they can do is start to rethink how space is used in the city. There are a ton of places where zoning codes and different ordinances prevent things from being built close together. If things were built more densely in some American cities, that would mean that some people could walk to work and wouldn't have to hop in a car or a bus at all. So that's I think that's the first big thing to do. Of course, that's a really tall order, and that's something that's going to have to be tackled in every city in a different way. But that's one way to make dependence on cars less vital. Ariane Marshall, writer covering transportation for Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.